Let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, your word. By the power of your Holy Spirit, enlighten our minds to understand it and to see it embodied in the word made flesh, even Jesus Christ, our Lord. In his name we pray, amen. Uh, We're eventually going to get to Mark 13 this morning, but before we do that, I want us to go back in time more than 600 years before Mark's gospel. We go back to the days of the prophet Jeremiah, as was read for us in our Old Testament reading. At that time, the kingdom of Israel had been divided in two. Now the Assyrian Empire had already come and conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, The southern kingdom of Judah had only narrowly escaped that same fate by the Lord's miraculous intervention. But now in Jeremiah's day, an even bigger fish had now swallowed the Assyrian Empire, and this was the Babylonians. And King Nebuchadnezzar and those Babylonian armies were now encroaching on Judah's doorstep. So things did not look good. What could save Judah from this certain defeat? And from the exile and from the captivity that would surely follow. Apparently, one slogan going around in Jeremiah's day had to do with the temple. The huge stone house where the Jews worshipped the Lord and where he dwelt in their midst. Judah thought that surely the presence of God's holy house would guarantee their security. After all, they probably thought... Those traitors in northern Israel had long ago abandoned the true capital city of Jerusalem. They had abandoned the true kings from the line of David. They had abandoned the true temple built by Solomon at God's command. So no wonder God allowed them to be overthrown by the Assyrian armies. But we are here in Judah. We are in Jerusalem. We still have the true temple. We still have God's house, this glorious building with its shining stones and glittering gold, the wonder of of the ancient world. Surely God will not allow his own house to be destroyed. And so they chanted, This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Surely God would not let his own holy house be defiled by pagan Gentile invaders. They had the temple of the Lord, The problem was they didn't have the Lord himself. You see, they put their faith in the outward edifice. They put their faith in national pride and in the works and strength of men. They put their faith in the flesh, as humans have been doing since Adam and Eve. Now, if they paid closer attention to their own history, they might have been less confident, right? Didn't they remember what happened last time Israel put their trust in the Lord's furniture instead of in the Lord himself? Now here we're going to jump back another 500 years, so stick with me. You remember the story in the book of Samuel when Israel tried to take the Ark of the Covenant with them into battle with the Philistines? Like some kind of mascot, some kind of secret weapon. What happened? They were absolutely routed. The Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant, and God allowed the Philistines to tear down his house, the tabernacle, which had been set up in Shiloh since Israel came into the land. So at that time, Israel put their hope in the house and the furniture of God instead of in God himself, and so 
God allowed their enemies to come and to destroy his house because Israel had misused it. Okay, so fast forwarding again, 500 years, days of Jeremiah, and here they are doing it again. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. God will save us from the Babylonians because he cares about this glorious house we have built for him. So God told Jeremiah to go stand in the temple gate and warn Judah with this word, Jeremiah 7.4. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name and say, we are delivered? Has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes? And then Jeremiah was supposed to remind Israel what happened when they took the ark into battle against the Philistines 500 years before. Verse 12, go now to my place that was in Shiloh, the tabernacle, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name and in which you trust and to the place that I gave to you and to your fathers as I did to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight. The man of God, Jeremiah, stood in the doorway of the temple and warned the people of Jerusalem. God has torn his house from us before. He can do it again. One more Old Testament thing I want to throw in here before we get to the Gospel of Mark. In the laws of Leviticus, there's actually a law for household leprosy. Okay? Probably refers to some kind of fungus or mold, something like that. But this disease could form on the stones in the walls of houses in Israel. And if someone found that their house had this leprosy, they had to call the priest to come inspect it just as he would a case of leprosy on someone's skin. If the house was diseased, the priest would declare it and all its furniture unclean, and he would shut up the house for seven days. If, after seven days, the priest found that that household leprosy had spread and that the corruption could not be getting rid of, the law commanded that the priest had to break down the house, remove its stones and timber, and carry them out of the city to an unclean place. Jeremiah is acting like that inspecting priest here. He comes to God's house, to the temple, and he sees it filled with leprosy, filled with the corruption of injustice, oppression, and murder, and adultery. And so he warns that the law will be fulfilled. If the corruption cannot be cleansed, the house must be torn down. The stones of the temple must be thrown out. Sound familiar from our gospel passage? You see, God's not that enamored with the temple. He's not that concerned about the houses that men would build for him. Because from the beginning of creation, God has been the true house builder. He's interested in the house that he is building. And what is the house that Yahweh is building according to the book of Jeremiah? 
Well, we learn this in Jeremiah chapter 1. Yahweh says to Jeremiah, Behold, I make you this day a fortified city, an iron pillar, and bronze walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you. For I am with you, declares the Lord, to deliver you. The stone temple and fortifications of Jerusalem will be torn down, God tells Jeremiah. But never fear, God says he is building Jeremiah into a strong house, a living house, to stand against opposition and declare the true word of the Lord. So what we learn from Jeremiah is that it is the man of God who trusts in God's word and yet is persecuted by his brothers. The man of God himself is the temple that God is building. God says he will build Jeremiah up so that God can set him over nations and kingdoms, he says, to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. God is building his house in his prophet, in his suffering servant, in his anointed one. So with all that Old Testament background in our minds, now we come to our gospel passage, Mark 13. And it's a passage filled with dramatic, cataclysmic imagery, wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes, tribulations, abominations, The sun and moon going dark, the stars falling from heaven. These are the sorts of pictures that Jesus paints for us in Mark 13 and the parallel accounts in the other Gospels. And we're going to talk more about that imagery in a second. But the question is, what does all that refer to? What is all this weird stuff talking about? In Mark's Gospel especially, we are explicitly told what all this strange imagery refers to. So look at Mark 13 verse 1. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us. When will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? So the context makes it clear. Jesus has just prophesied that this wonderful temple of the Lord will be destroyed. Just as Jeremiah prophesied the same thing more than 500 years before. And the next thing that happens in Mark's gospel is the disciples asking Jesus, When will these things be? What will be the sign when these things are about to be accomplished? These things refers to the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem. So then in the rest of Mark, Mark 13, is Jesus' response to that question. When will the temple be destroyed? What will be the sign that this is about to take place? And Jesus graciously tells them because he wants them to be prepared. He wants them to flee from this twisted generation and the judgment that he knows will come. And so he tells them, verse 8, Nation will rise against nation 
and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. Well, that sounds pretty cataclysmic. He also tells them, verse 9, But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. Well, that part, we know exactly what Jesus is talking about there because we have the rest of the New Testament. Spend any amount of time reading the book of Acts or Paul's letters and you will see that this happened within that generation. Within 40 years from Jesus speaking this word, his apostles are repeatedly beaten in synagogues and driven before councils and before rulers. Jesus also says, Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. Again, read through Acts and Paul's letters. Most of the persecution that these early Jewish Christians faced was from the hands of their fellow Jews. It was brother versus brother and father versus children. And then Jesus points to one specific sign that will show the climate, that the climax of this judgment has come. Verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. Now, we don't know exactly what this abomination of desolation was. We do know that the language is borrowed from the prophecy of Daniel, as you might remember from our recent series in the book of Daniel. And there we saw that the abomination of desolation spoken of there probably refers to the events of the late 160s B.C., when the armies of the Syrian Empire, Antiochus Epiphanes, sacked Jerusalem. They desecrated the temple, they oppressed the Jewish people, put an end to their sacrifices and worship, and prevented them from keeping God's law. It's described as an abomination of desolation. So it seems that Jesus is prophesying an event like that, like that that would occur in the first century, the same type of thing. A Gentile army attack on Jerusalem, some kind of desecration of the temple, an end to the sacrifices and the system of worship, practice there. He doesn't give more details. He seems to think that the disciples will know it when they see it, and that will be the sign to them that it's time to get out of Dodge, to flee from Judea, he tells them. And he goes on, verse 24, but in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Now these images especially are ones that we tend to associate with the end of the physical universe. We think Jesus is saying that the literal sun will go dark, that the literal stars will fall from heaven, however that would work. But the only reason we read those images is because we don't know our Old Testament like we should. You see, when Jesus speaks in these cataclysmic images, he's not doing something new. He's borrowing the same language that God's prophets have been using all along. 
Isaiah, Jeremiah, Zechariah, they all use this kind of language. But they use it to describe the fall of human rulers and of human empires. They use it to describe the fall of the kingdoms of Assyria or Egypt or Babylon. They're not talking about the end of the physical universe. Isaiah chapter 13 is my go-to to illustrate this. And it makes it easy to remember, right? Read Isaiah 13 if you want to understand Mark 13, okay? Verse 1 of Isaiah 13 says everything that follows, the oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. This prophecy is about the Babylonian Empire. And how does Isaiah describe the fall of Babylon? I want you to pay attention to all the similarities with what Jesus is saying. Isaiah 13, verse 4. The sound of an uproar of kingdoms, of nations gathering together. Verse 8. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. Verse 10. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. 13. Therefore I make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place. Remember, we're talking about the defeat of the Babylonian Empire here, and that's reiterated in the next verse of Isaiah 13, verse 17. Behold, I am stirring up the Medes against them. That's the Persian Empire. We learned about this also in our Daniel series, didn't we? The Medes and Persians were the ones God sent to conquer Babylon. I'm raising up the Medes against them. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. That's what he's talking about. The literal sun did not go black. The literal stars did not fall from heaven when Persia conquered Babylon in 539 B.C., right? We're all still here. All that poetic language is being used to describe the fall of the rulers in the exalted, the heavenly places, the high and mighty rulers of Babylon falling from power. And Jesus echoes all that language here in Mark 13. He talks about nations rising up against nations. He talks about it as a kind of birth pains. He talks about unprecedented tribulation. He says sun and moon will be darkened, stars will be falling, heaven and earth will be shaken. He's basically quoting Isaiah 13. And like Isaiah, Jesus is using that symbolic language to describe not the end of the physical world, but the downfall of oppressive rulers who do not honor God. In Jesus' case, it's not the rulers of Babylon, but the rulers of Jerusalem. Jerusalem has become a Babylon. He's prophesying the end of the old covenant order, the temple and the sacrifices and the whole system of worship and rule in Jerusalem, which had become leprous, which had become corrupt and oppressive, and was now ripe for judgment. Now, many have interpreted Mark 13 as a prediction of the end of the world and the last judgment, and I don't deny that it has relevance for that. That This is the way God works. He uses repeated imagery and symbols, as we've already seen in Samuel and Jeremiah and now in the Gospel of Mark. So the end of our current world system will certainly be similar to this. It will have similarities to the end of the old covenant system that occurred in first century Jerusalem. But primarily in this passage, 
Jesus is answering the disciples' question about when the, the temple would be torn down. And he says to his disciples, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So if we take him at his word, these events had to occur within the lifetime of his original audience. So just as he had in Jeremiah's day, in the first century, God sent his prophet to the temple with a word of judgment. God is going to tear this temple down. There will not be left here one stone upon another. So the question is, why? Teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Isn't this the temple of the Lord? Isn't this God's own house? Why would God's son prophesy the destruction of his father's house? Well, we've seen this over the last few weeks as we've been walking through Mark. The religious leaders of Jesus' day have become wicked. The whole system of the temple has been corrupted. It's become the opposite of what God intended. So we've seen widows are going broke while the priests are lining their pockets. We've seen shepherds like Herod and the chief priests devouring their sheep. Justice is being neglected. The temple is not being used as a house of prayer for the nations. The people's lives do not reflect God's righteousness and faithfulness. Instead, they live lives of hypocrisy and betrayal. Jesus says the temple has become a den of thieves and rebels, just as it was in Jeremiah's day. And now, most importantly, as we saw in Jesus' parable of the vineyard, God's people have killed all the prophets God has sent to call them to repentance. And now the vineyard owner has sent his beloved son to them. And how have they received him? The people he came to save have reviled him and rejected him, and now they are seeking to murder him. What will God do about it? Well, Jesus said in that parable, Jesus comes to Jerusalem like a priest. He comes to inspect the house for leprosy, and he finds it filled with corruption. And so judgment is rendered. And in that parable, Jesus describes it this way. The master of the vineyard will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. He will destroy Jerusalem and the temple and send his good news to the world. That's what Jesus prophesied. And his prophecy came true. That's the test of a prophet, isn't it? Jesus' prophecy was fulfilled within a generation, as he said, in the year 70 A.D. God used a Gentile army once again to come in and lay siege to Jerusalem and level the temple. And it was indeed a time of great tribulation. The powers were shaken. The old world order was brought to an end. See, God's people had put their trust in the flesh, in circumcision, in the traditions of men, in their national identity, in these wonderful stones and wonderful buildings. But for God, it was never about the house that his people had built for him. It was about the house that he was building in his people. The reason God tore down the temple made by humans' hands was because he had sent the true temple in his son, Jesus Christ. The old temple was temporary. 
And it had become a den of thieves. It had been corrupted. But Jesus, the new temple, is eternal. Jesus is himself a shelter for the oppressed, the house of prayer for the nations. And he is incorruptible in his resurrection. The temple was a house decorated to look like heaven with all its carved angels and glittering gold, its blue and purple and scarlet sky-colored fabric. And being built in Jerusalem, it symbolized the merging of heaven and earth, the place where God met with man and dwelt with him. But it was all temporary shadow. It was pointing forward to the reality to come. Because Jesus actually did come from heaven. And in Jesus, the heavenly God took on earthly flesh. So that in Jesus, heaven and earth, God and man, have finally been united forever. And so God had to destroy the old world. He had to destroy the old temple because a new creation had come. The true temple had appeared. It would not do for his people to continue to trust in the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Because now the temple is the Lord. And no one comes to the Father but by him. My friends, God continues to build his house by building his people. The new creation begun in Christ continues to go forth. His kingdom is not confined to a certain land or a certain city or a certain building or a certain people. Jesus has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, we must not put our hope in the flesh as Israel did in Jeremiah's day, as they did in Jesus' day as we continue to do in our day. We have our own temples of flesh, temples made with human hands, built out of our good works, the comforts of life, the power of wealth, the pleasures of the body, the admiration of others, the illusion of control. We build tiny temples and we try to shove God into them so that we can control him and manipulate him, bring him out when we need him and then put him away when we don't. But God doesn't work like that. All of these are empty temples with leprous walls. They are desolate houses. If we do not abandon them, God will come and tear them away from us as he tore his temple from Israel. Because God has built the true temple in his son, Jesus Christ. And he has sent his spirit to dwell within us. And so if we put our trust in Jesus, we are part of that true temple that God has built with no human hands. We are part of the heavenly Jerusalem. We are a fortified city, an iron pillar and bronze walls. We are part of the house that will stand strong when the rains come down and the floods come up. If we endure to the end, as Jesus says, we will be saved. And we will enter into the new creation where heaven comes to earth and God and man dwell together perfectly, where there is no need for sun, moon, and stars because the Lord Jesus will be our light and we will dwell in that light forever. May you always abide in the true temple, Jesus Christ, and may God the Father build his house in you by the power of his Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus Christ, the true temple 
in whom we dwell by faith and the power of your Holy Spirit. Make us to abide in him all our days, that you might build us up into a spiritual house, feasting on your gifts and bringing honor to your name. Amen.